listening to Law and Gospel Open Mic Friday on this February the 19th in the year of our Lord, 2021. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and we've got some emails that have come in. Many of you know that on Tuesday, occasionally, or every week, I'm on Issues Etc., taking a look at the Sunday School lesson for that particular week. Been doing that for a number of years. Really enjoy it. And they got an email that I like to respond to uh, about that. Uh, the first email, though, is talking to them about a particular subject. It's from a woman, and she says, Considering that you've done several episodes of responding to listener comments since I sent this, and that there are weekly interviews with Pastor Baker, is it safe to conclude my question regarding baptism of the unborn won't be addressed on the show? Fear not. Even if it won't, I'll keep downloading and listening. And so here's the email. She says, I'm in the process of listening to the latest teaching, a Sunday School lesson episode from Pastor Baker, in which he said not one but two things that I would like you to clarify or comment on if possible. First, and I have to admit, this shocked me. He mentioned that he has known a pastor who baptized a baby before it was born. Clearly, I am no pastor or theologian, but I do not believe that this is possible, and I would appreciate his and your response on this practice. Okay, I've been on KFUO 24 years, and so this occurred probably the second or third year I was on KFUO. I was a very good friend of a Detroit pastor, Pastor Bornman, and he had an all-black congregation. Uh, he also was black, and he told me about that occasion when the doctor had indicated that the child about to be born, either the child would die or the woman would die. Now, that's not really taking place so much today because they have learned quite a bit as to how to help that. But, but I remember that movie, I even talked about it, where a Roman Catholic priest had a sister who was pregnant and he had to make a decision as to allow her to die or the baby to die. If the baby was born, the baby would die. And so he made a decision not to allow the baby to die and his sister did die. That was kind of an interesting movie. In this situation, it was very similar. And he then asked if he could baptize the child before it was born, or I think it was while it was being uh, born, coming out of the womb. And he was able to do that. So the child was unborn. That's medically possible. And whether or not that was a valid baptism, that's up to God. 
But there's no doubt that in the Bible, there is an individual who received the gift of the Holy Spirit before he was born. And that, of course, was John the Baptizer. His father had been told by Gabriel that he would receive the Holy Spirit before he was born. And the father didn't believe that. So he became mute, was unable to speak until John the Baptizer was born. And he called him John, even though you usually call the first son after the name of the father. But he was obeying, therefore, what God had said through Gabriel and called him John. But John the baptizer, while he was still in the womb, and we know exactly when that occurred, that was at six months, because the angel Gabriel had gone to Mary and told her, revealed to her, that she was going to have a baby, even though she was not with a man, and it would be conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, as we say in our creed. And sure enough, Mary believed that and had rushed to see Elizabeth to tell her about it, stayed with her six or three months, it says, but had gone when Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John the baptizer. And he leaped in the womb for joy when Jesus, who was about two days in the womb of Mary, entered into the room. Now, if that wasn't by the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't know what was. Elizabeth indicated that that was by the Holy Spirit that that had occurred. At any rate, I thought that was really very interesting. And so I'm not going to say that that wasn't a valid baptism. Sometimes we just don't have the answers. But it kind of goes with the next question where she continues to ask. Later in that same episode, she's talking about my radio broadcast on issues, etc., on the Sunday school. He suggests burning pieces of paper on which Sunday school students have written the sins that they've committed recently. I believe that he missed a golden opportunity to talk about private confession and absolution. And again, I would appreciate his and your response and thoughts on this matter. Well, when I do the Sunday school lesson, I do read, of course, the Concordia Publishing House lesson as they put it out. And it was in that lesson that they gave that consideration of having the kids take a piece of paper and perhaps write a sin that they had done this past week. And then they wouldn't share that paper with anyone, but the teacher would help them to burn that paper. Now, the point was, and maybe I wasn't clear enough, that that was talking about how Jesus forgave their sins. Remember, both in Jeremiah and Hebrews, the new covenant, it says, I will no longer remember your sins. 
Now, what does that mean? If God is omniscient, and we've talked about this before, how can he no longer remember your sins? Because the word remember really isn't talking about memory. It's talking about, I remember what you did, and therefore I'm going to get even. God says he's not going to get even with you. In Romans 3, it talks about that we are all held accountable to God because of our sins, and therefore we need to fear him because he could send us to hell. But then it's very clear that in Romans 3, the righteousness of God has been given to us who have faith in the promises of the gospel. We are not saved because of any good work we have ever done, but our faith in the promises of the gospel, that faith comes about by the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot ourselves choose that faith. And so it's very clear that when you receive faith like Abraham did, yes, Abraham, you and Sarah are gonna have a baby. Now, Sarah was way beyond the age of having a baby, but he believed it, and therefore he was declared righteous. That's how Christianity works. You are declared to be righteous when you have faith in Jesus Christ, even though you are a 100% sinner and therefore also a 100% righteous. That's how Christianity works. And we remember that with David. He sinned with Bathsheba. The prophet came to him and told him that parable about a man who had a pet lamb, and that was taken away from him by the master of the estate and killed to help feed a visitor he had. David was very angry. Bring that man who killed that animal, and I will put him to death. And then the prophet says, thou art the man, because of what he had done with Bathsheba, killed her husband, broken every commandment, all 10 of them, he broke in that sin. And then David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And the prophet says, don't worry about it. Your sin has been forgiven. Now, there were still consequences in the temporal world that David experienced because of that sin, but there were no more any consequences in the spiritual realm. Because David himself says about his child who died, he will not return to me, but I will go to him. Uh, a wonderful statement of the resurrection from the dead that David had. And that's why through David came the Messiah, the son of David, namely Jesus Christ. So if I hadn't made it myself clear, the burning of the paper, we have to remember, was signifying Jesus' death on the cross where he paid for the sins of these children. And therefore, they were gone as far as the east is from the west. In other words, guess what? 
they were no longer held accountable. Now, I'd like to read the last sentence in that email. And this was two issues, etc. team. As always, thank you for everything that you do. Issues, etc. has been the main catechist in the life of this lifelong Lutheran. What she means by catechist is she looks to issues, etc., and it has been the main area of teaching her what Christianity is truly all about. It's on KFUO every day from 3 to 5. And my program, Law and Gospel, of course, is on at 9.30 every day, Monday to Friday. So that's an email that I thought I don't have time when I do the Sunday school lesson to respond. And since she asked me personally, I thought I would at least give those insights from Scripture. Okay. Second email I received this week, one of them. Hi, Pastor. I have heard this song played many times on the radio, usually around Thanksgiving. Surprisingly, I couldn't locate it in the LSB. That's our hymnal. And was wondering if it was titled differently in our hymnal. The title that I found is The Master Has Come. It is a beautiful Welsh melody, and I believe written by Sarah Dudney. She lived in 1871. My question is how the Christian lyrics are. From my survey, it all appears scriptural with one or two lines that sound a bit Wesleyan in theology. Have you ever used it in a service? Would it be appropriate in a Lutheran divine service? Thanks for your reply, and God bless your thanksgiving. And then his name. He's a pastor. Okay. We get these kinds of letters more often than you would think, especially from lay people who are getting fed up with the contemporary music that is being used in their worship services. And normally when that occurs, guess what? The pastor also changes the liturgy. So I am not saying there are not some contemporary songs that are wonderful. In fact, if you go through our hymnal, you'll, you'll find that there are some written by individuals who are still alive. I consider them to be contemporary songs. But what we're talking about are those songs that they get from hymn books where there's a good beat to it. They might even have a band. And I'm not in and of itself against a band. Uh, for example, I love trumpets during the worship service. And second of all, I love violins. So just recently uh, for the Reformation, we had a trumpet. Uh, well, it really wasn't a trumpet, but it sounded like a trumpet and um, was playing during the hymns. And it just gives 
a different insight into the hymns. So I found this hymn he was talking about, and it was written by Sarah Doudney, D-O-U-D-N-E-Y. She died in 1920. And yes, the first line is, the master has come. So let's kind of go through the verses and see if they're appropriate. I'm not that much opposed to melodies as I am opposed to certain words that occur in hymns that may give the wrong impression. I believe that when I was at my congregation for 28 years, I had both the choir director and the organist we would talk about how we were going to do the worship service. And it was always from the hymnal, some liturgy. I mean, there's four of them right now, five of them, six of them, if you have matins and vespers. But then I would want to know what were the hymns ahead of time. Now, why would I want to know that? Because I often incorporate a hymn into the sermon. For example, I'll choose a hymn that has the same theme as the sermon and place it before I do the sermon. And then in the sermon, I'll say, by the way, this is a truth from Holy Scripture, and you just sang about it. And I'll repeat what they sang in the hymn, because many people are so concentrating on getting the melody right that they're not really concentrating on the words. And hymns are magnificent in giving a proper summary of the Christian faith. So verse one, the master has come and he calls us to follow the track of his footprints he leaves on our way. Now, this is a little problem for me because there is that thinking that, and this is a dream someone had, that he sees his footprints through life. But then when he's really in trouble, he used to see two sets of footprints, one by Jesus and one by him. But when he's in trouble, there's only one set of footprints he sees in his dream. And he wonders whether or not Christ has left him. But the answer is Christ is carrying him like he did the lost sheep in Luke 15. Picks up the sheep, puts it on his shoulders, and carries it home. So, in a sense, if verse 1 is talking about coming to faith, it's not that we follow the tracks of his footprints, but that rather there's only one set of footprints and it's his because he is carrying us home. So if it's talking about justification, which is not clear, then I wouldn't like to use this first verse. But if it's talking about sanctification, where God asks us to follow him, well, 
then it might have some bearing on our Christian life. Far over the mountain and through the deep hollow, the path leads us on to the eternal day. Now, that can be understood properly because as we believe in Jesus and attempt to follow him in our works, you know where the path is going to lead to on the day of judgment where he will be sending the angels to bring us to heaven in the body to rejoin our spirits that are already there. The the next verse, the master has called us, the children who fear him, who march neath Christ's banner, his own little flock. And then the next verse continues. We love him and seek him. We long to be near him and rest in the strength of this unyielding rock. Now, there's no doubt that when we have times of trouble, we're seeking Jesus and we rest in the strength of his unyielding rock, which means what? The Bible verses, the promises of the gospel. So, yes, when we're going through tough times, he has called us to walk with him. Verse 2, it says, The Master has called us to walk in the valleys, the shadow of death and the evil so near. But God, who does lead us to feed in green meadows, we hear his rejoicing that brings us to cheer. Now, that could be talking about Psalm 23, that, remember, we're given still waters and green meadows to feed. And there's no doubt God is our shepherd who does lead us. The master has called us. We run hard to hold him and cling to our shepherd who stands as our king. Now, it's actually Jesus running hard to hold us. It's just the very opposite. And he does that through word and sacrament. Defends us and helps us, our hearts now adoring, will pass through this valley and shout as we sing. Yes, even the mountains are going to be shouting for what Jesus Christ has done. Verse 3, the master has called us to live for his glory, to tell of his mercy and wonderful grace. Salvation, revelation, redeemed is our story. He seeks us and finds us and quickens our pace. Now that's our pace to heaven. That's probably the best verse in the entire hymn because Jesus becomes the subject of our salvation. He seeks us. He finds us. The master has called us, and love is his banner. The sheep of his pasture, the chosen in him. Our bondage is broken. Our enemies fallen. We'll march on victorious through God. We shall win. So what bondage is this hymn talking about? Our bondage to Satan. Verse 4. 
The master has called us. The road may be dreary, and dangers and demons may form their attack. Press onward, look upward through much tribulation. We follow the Savior and cannot turn back. The master has called us a people most favored to ever move forward and never retreat. So work on, dear brethren, till we rest from labor when we're in the presence of Jesus so sweet. Now that last part of that final verse, so work on, dear brethren. I don't want to give the impression that our works in any way move us toward a rest from labor because we're in the presence of Jesus so sweet. So except for a couple of areas where the hymn could be misunderstood, I think when you look at the whole thing, it could be appropriate for a worship service. I'm Tom Baker, and on the next Long Gospel, which is Monday, we'll be taking a look at the hymns for the first Sunday in Lent on Tuesday and the readings on Monday. Join with us for a law gospel. Till then, God bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your checkout to Law & Gospel and mail to Law & Gospel P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132, or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod.